Good evening and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law and the Virtual Justice Project. We thank you for joining us this evening. In North Carolina, charter schools were authorized beginning in 1996 with the enactment of the North Carolina Charter School Act, and the first North Carolina charter schools began operation in 1997. When charter schools were initially authorized, there was a cap so that not more than 100 charter schools could be authorized. However, when the Republicans gained control of the General Assembly in 2011, that cap was removed. There are currently 184 charter schools, including two virtual charter schools operating in North Carolina, serving approximately 100,000 children. Fifteen new charter schools will open in August 2019, bringing the state's total to 199. That number could increase to as many as 234 charter schools in August 2020 based on charter school applications currently being reviewed by the State Board of Education. Charter schools at their best are innovative educational institutions that complement traditional public schools and serve the needs of the community regardless of race, socioeconomic status, or disability. At their worst, Charter schools are vehicles to siphon public funds to facilitate segregated education for the benefit of the white and rich to the detriment of the black and poor. As a result of the significant rise of charter schools and concern about inequity and the lack of accountability, State Senate Democratic leader Dan Blue, along with others, have introduced Senate Bill 247, which would establish a joint legislative study committee to study the impact of charter schools on traditional public schools and student academic performance and put a hold on the granting of charter applications until the committee has issued its report and recommendations. On this evening's show, we're going to talk about charter schools in North Carolina with two scholars who research and write in the area of education. We have with us in the studio Malik Edwards, law professor here at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and Erica Wilson, law professor at UNC Chapel Hill School of Law. Thank you both for joining us this evening. Good evening. Good evening. So I'd like to start and have each of you just kind of share your thoughts generally about charter schools and the role that they can play in the education of our children. Malik, let's start with you. Um, I think you framed it well. Um, what charters at their best and charters at their worst can do. Um, I think they're part of a larger system of school choice that we're seeing debated nationally, especially with DeVos being the head of the Department of Education and sort of those pushes. Um, and I think we need to look at exactly what charters are. I think giving parents options and not having people limit having limited educational opportunities based purely on zip code is important. Um, but I think there's a need for accountability and there's a need to understand exactly how charters are being used. Um, I think any 
examination of charters requires us, and I think the state should require an examination of what the segregative effect will be of opening charter schools, and that at this point is not required anywhere in the country, even though we have a line of re numbers of lines of research that talk about the segregative effect. Um, I would agree. I mean, I think that uh, charter schools at their best could be uh, laboratories for innovation, right? When charters were first introduced, uh, not just in North Carolina, but nationally, the idea was that charter schools would be able to uh, experiment with different kinds of curricular innovations, et cetera, that could be, then be taught, taken back to traditional public schools. And so charter schools were at least initially meant to supplement, not supplant traditional public schools. And I think part of the issue, particularly in North Carolina, but in, across the country is really that charters have morphed uh, out of that uh, supplementation role and in many places are supplanting traditional public schools altogether. So in addition to uh, really considering the possible segregative effects. It also raises questions about what is the appropriate role of the state in making sure that all children get an, a quality education. In some ways, um, choice generally and charter schools specifically shifts the burden uh, from the state uh, to the individual parent to try and shop and find a quality uh, school for their child. Given what we know, uh, our research has shown about how parents make choices, um, race is always going to be a factor uh, in, the, in the selection process. And also given what we know about uh, parental information asymmetry, um, all choices are not going to be uh, equally informed. So I, I think that, um, again, I, I guess to summarize that it's important to really consider the role that charters are playing so that they um, are not supplanting traditional public education to look at the ways in which uh, choice can be constrained leading to uh, segregation and inequality in, in charter schools. So we, I think, all agree that, that at least in theory, the idea behind charter schools is is, is you know, certainly a positive one when we think about the opportunity for parents to have choice, to have innovation in these schools. Uh, but what I'm hearing both of you say is there's a disconnect between the idea and what's actually happening in practice. Um, Erica, you mentioned, you know, this this program has morphed into something that wasn't anticipated when charter schools were, were first, um, when they first began, I think it was in 1992. Um, what would you account to uh, the cause of, of that problem, and I'm sure there are many, but maybe one um, or two causes of this morphing that we see that's occurred. So I think, uh, as you said, the causes are varied, but thinking about parents of color in particular, I think uh, many parents of color may have been frustrated uh, with the slow and uh, in some ways ineffective pace of school desegregation as a way to open up educational opportunities. And so I think normatively there was an embrace uh, by um, some members of uh, minority communities for this idea of choice uh, so that their um, educational options wouldn't be constrained by their zip code. And so I think... Um, Demand uh, on some level accounts for the um, the proliferation of charter schools as parents have uh, gotten frustrated with um, some of the things going on in traditional public schools, um, the uneven opportunities. The idea of choice in charters is attractive, right? I can choose somewhere for my child. And so on the demand side, I think that accounts for it. 
Um, on the supply side, I also think that uh, it, it involves a broader conversation about the role of the state in providing public education that uh, from for some um, states, uh, some uh, local governments, the idea of empowering parents also shifted some of the responsibility away from the state. And so uh, that, I think, on the supply side, might, might may be one of the reasons why we've seen uh, a proliferation larger than what maybe was originally anticipated. Well, you know, there, there's the argument uh, that's made that the uh, public schools have uh, really provided a uh, poor uh, performance grid. Uh, for uh, particularly for African Americans and uh, uh, children of, uh, of of color, uh, and that they they aren't up to snuff as to how they used to be, uh, and therefore uh, our people need to have a better uh, option available to them in order to uh, see that the children aren't uh, becoming uh, functionally literate. Uh, how how do you balance the need to improve the uh, academic performance of, of kids against this notion of uh, uh, this uh, public education uh, controlled by the state? Well, one, I don't know that charters necessarily does that. If you look at charters, high-performing charters do better than traditional public schools, but they tend to do if you look at high-performing public schools. Low-performing charters underperform lower performing public schools. I mean, I think choice can be choice when you don't actually have choices isn't going to help. Um, and that's where you were talking about the asymmetry of information. Sometimes you're just taking something because it's different. But you're jumping out of the frying pan and into the fire. We need to have an assurance that charters are meeting basic levels, that if we are going to create choices, that the state is still involved. Charters are part of larger market-based reforms, that we want the market to control and we want to remove the safety net that the government provides. I'm a believer in the government providing a safety net and education being a main part of this. Can we develop a system of charters that works within this understanding of a safety net? Yes. But I see charters being presented. I think what happened with charters was intentional. It was part of larger market-based reforms. There wasn't enough money to do vouchers as part of this. And I don't know that you can discuss charters without also discussing vouchers and the other means of doing choice. I mean, you end up with something like New Orleans, where at this point they have an entire charter system. So it's completely taken over. And I think it was very intentional. So on this note of, uh, of accountability, and so there are a couple of things when we think about accountability, when we think about oversight, um, when we think about the supply, um, to focus a little bit on oversight. So when we're thinking about charter schools, and I think this also kind of goes back to the issue of choice, if you don't have a voice in the policies that are adopted by the charter schools, you know, there's a question about how much choice you really have if you don't have a voice. Can can you all talk about the, the problems that exist when, when we think about our traditional public schools and we think about these schools being run by elected school boards versus charter schools that are run by uh, these boards that are not elected? Um, what what issues we have there when we just think about public funds being given to um, organizations or entities that are not accountable to the people? 
I mean, I think um, there are a number of issues that arise, and I think it's important to point out that there are a lot of different kinds of charters and a lot of different kinds of entities that run uh, charter schools. Uh, so that's the first point, and it's, in, it's relevant for purposes of accountability uh, because there have been some recent uh, challenges um, in courts where charters have contested that they were even uh, public in the sense that certain constitutional provisions should apply to them. And so that is uh, particularly problematic uh, in terms of accountability. Other issues that we might see um, include uh, everyday things like school discipline, for example. Um, at UNC, I also run a, uh, a law clinic, uh, and sometimes we represent students in school discipline um, proceedings. And so uh, what you might see in some charter schools, not all charter schools, is that they may have a very different conception of what school discipline should look like, and there may be a desire to push out uh, children who are uh, have more needs, I'll put it like that, uh, and to use discipline uh, in a way uh, that does that. And so in terms of accountability, if you are in a traditional public school, you can go to your um, school board member and say, hey, I don't like what's going on here. If you're in a charter school, uh, that option uh, is not uh, the same because you're not being uh, necessarily represented by a, a public official um, in terms of being able to lodge a complaint uh, in that manner. Um, so I think those are just some examples of the ways the accountability uh, issue rears its head when it comes to charter schools. Now, who operates the uh, charter schools? You're saying that the accountability is not uh, there. I was under the impression that the charter schools were still under the public school structure uh, but there was some uh, loosening of uh, regulations that they had to uh, uh, conform to in operating the school. So who is really operating these uh, charter schools? That varies from jurisdiction. So mm -hmm. in North Carolina, the state, in fact, gives the charters. The local districts do not provide the charters. One of the interesting things about charter schools in North Carolina is that you can go to a charter out of your district because they are done on the state. Um, so I could choose if I'm going to provide transportation to send my child to a charter school in Charlotte if they have a program um, under which I'm interested. The actual running of the individual charters varies again from charters. So you have for-profit companies running charters. You have some that sort of I think fall into what we think of traditional community-based charters where they are started by parents and teachers and are committed to an understanding. Yeah. Well, how, 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 how did the uh, for-profit uh, management companies get involved in the charter school operation? Well, I think uh, in some ways there's money to be made uh, in, in running uh, charter schools. And so um, in certain jurisdictions, uh, it's permissible for for-profit entities to run uh, charter schools. And so I think thinking about um, North Carolina, the proposed bill in North Carolina to study um, charters or put a moratorium on charter growth, that's one of the things definitely worth looking at. I mean, who should be able to uh, run charter schools and what are some of the uh, potential negative side effects when you see for-profit entities running uh, charter schools and uh, what it means in terms of the tension between their desire to make a profit uh, and the public good that education is supposed to be. Sounds like a corporate hustle. <laughs> 
that's a, that's a <laughs> good shorthand way of saying it. <laughs> and that feeds into your point, Erica, about the proliferation, right? Mm-hmm. And so you've, of course, got the demand side. You've got the state wanting to um, kind of shirk its responsibility. Mm-hmm. And, and the big piece, I think, is that this is really a big moneymaker. Um, and so when we think about why we're seeing so many charter schools, why it is that there's legislation uh, that like so North Carolina is a perfect example. It, it was of no concept. It's you know it's not a coincidence that the removal of that cap occurred with a Republican-controlled General Assembly. And so when we think about those that are lobbying for charter schools, um, you know not everyone who's lobbying is lobbying because they think this is a better educational model for our our children. Many are lobbying because they see the money that's tied to it. All right, we're going to take a quick break. You are listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. We have been talking about charter schools in North Carolina. We have with us in the studio Malik Edwards. He is a law professor at North Carolina Central University School of Law and Erica Wilson, a law professor at UNC Chapel Hill School of Law. We're going to take a quick break. We hope you will stay with us. Since 2010, the North Carolina Central University School of Law has been at the forefront of virtual legal education with the launch of its Virtual Justice Project. The Virtual Justice Project is an innovation in legal education and technology. NCCU School of Law pioneered this approach to address the underrepresentation of African-American lawyers and a lack of access to justice for low-income and marginalized communities. Virtual pre-law courses prepare students, wherever they are, for the rigor of law school. The Know Your Rights series offers legal information sessions that empower participants to understand the law and to promote self-advocacy. Both the pre-law courses and the legal information sessions are made possible through telepresence and high-definition video conferencing. Course listings and contact information, along with more detail about the Virtual Justice Project, are on the NCCU Law website at law.nccu.edu. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson, and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking with Erica Wilson, law professor at UNC Chapel Hill School of Law, and Malik Edwards, law professor at North Carolina Central University School of Law, about charter schools in North Carolina. So right before the break, we were talking about how the proliferation of charter schools is uh, in part due to the money-making nature of these schools, when you have private organizations that are running these schools. Uh, And I think we've mentioned that uh, in North Carolina and and throughout the country, there are virtual charter schools that are popping up. And the reports are that these schools, generally speaking, are run by for-profit organizations, so they are money-makers. But across the country, they are underperforming schools. Um, And I wanted to kind of talk a little bit, Erica, you had mentioned that the school discipline issue and how these charter schools are using school discipline oftentimes as a means by which to um, select students out of the school. Can you talk a little bit about 
how students are selected and why it might be in the interest of a charter school to uh, remove students that, that they feel might be um, more difficult to educate. So um, charter schools are in theory available to all students uh, with some, some minor exceptions. North Carolina just passed a new bill that would allow for uh, predominantly white municipalities outside of Charlotte to create their own uh, charter districts and to limit enrollment to um, students who are mem- or residents of the municipalities. But outside of that kind of context, generally charters are open to all students. When charters are oversubscribed, uh, the enrollment occurs through a lottery process. Uh, and so um, through the lottery process, um, you can envision a situation where a charter school ends up with uh, a student who may have more needs, let's say. Uh, and so Um, One of the ways that charter schools might uh, try and winnow out uh, children who have more needs or um, who could potentially drive down test scores is through school discipline to um, to continue to discipline them, suspend, suspend, suspend until uh, the child voluntarily leaves um, is one way. Um, The other thing to understand about uh, how uh, charter enrollment happens is a lot of it happens through parental choice and knowledge, right? And so um, you have to know uh, to apply to a particular charter school. And if you look at patterns of enrollment, uh, I just recently wrote an article called Charters Choice, um, Charters and Choices, a New White Flight. It's coming out in the Duke uh, Journal of Constitutional Law and Public Policy. And so the article talks about uh, the ways in which um, charter schools can serve as uh, white flight vehicles um, to the extent that um, the charters decide to, to uh, adopt certain policies like no transportation, no free and reduced lunch. And so that will uh, sort of weed out a, a group of students who need those things. And it may attract a different group of students uh, who, who think it's attractive, perhaps, that uh, students, fewer poor students will be there. I'll, I'll put it like that. Uh, and so uh, the short version of the story then is that the charter selection process, even though uh, they're technically open to everyone and when they're oversubscribed, um, there has to be a lottery. Uh, the selection process starts before even that lottery process. It starts through who knows about the charters, what are the charters policies, and so who does that attract? So recruitment is a big thing for charters in terms of uh, identifying a particular population mm-hmm. that will ultimately end up at that uh, charter school. Is that Would that be correct? Yes, I think yeah. absolutely, even if it's not uh, a direct recruiting strategy, certainly there's an indirect recruiting strategy that occurs through um, not just even the things that I've talked about, like transportation or free and reduced lunch. One of the things I talk about in the article I mentioned is theme charter schools, for example. If you have a uh, Chinese immersion charter school uh, or if you have an Afrocentric charter school theme, that's going to attract very different groups uh, of students. A Montessori-based charter school, for example, uh, may attract a different uh, subset of students than an uh, Afrocentric-themed uh, charter school. So that's uh, those are ways that um, charter schools can recruit or target themselves to a particular demographic. Well, what is the, 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 the difference between the charter school and the private school? Uh, we know the difference between charter schools and public schools, but then there are also private schools out there. How do they differ from, uh, from charter schools? 
I mean, charter schools are ostensibly public schools. They are, they are publicly funded. The state provides the money. Private schools are run most often by nonprofits. In fact, you're probably going to find more for-profit charter schools than you will in the traditional private context. If you look at early litigation when they started to do vouchers, one of the problems was the places that provided schools, at least ones that you could afford with a voucher amount, were all religiously affiliated schools because the church was underwriting. Um, charters should have to provide due process protections. Whether or not that is in fact happening is another question, whereas private schools would not have to provide. They're not state actors. Um, they have greater leeway in selecting their students, um, and so they're different in that way. They aren't provided generally funding by the state, even though with the push towards vouchers, there's going to be, be an interesting question as to whether or not they're serving a state function and where the constitutional challenges will come in. You're seeing this a lot around, again, the issue of black hair, people, parents getting vouchers, sending their children to schools, and they're not they're attempting to remove students based on hair or clothing or dress or other cultural signifiers. Now, how, how are African Americans and, well, let's start with African Americans. How are African American children doing in these uh, charter schools? Or do they do better than what, uh, what the performance is like in, uh, in public schools? Or is it about the same or worse? So I think it depends, right? I don't know that there's a, a straightforward answer. I think it depends on the charter school. Uh, certainly there are uh, charter schools that are perform performing worse than traditional public schools and uh, charter schools where African-American students are doing worse than they might um, uh, their peers in a traditional public school. Uh, but I think this issue of charter differentiation and different quality, especially pertinent when you think of um, African-American students in, in charter schools, right? There are the charter schools that are oversubscribed that you hear about uh, nationally, maybe some of the KIPP schools or the, the Harlem Success Academy. You, you, you see these stories, these heartbreaking stories of parents uh, really hoping to get into the lottery because it's oversubscribed, the charter school sending many kids to college, et cetera. And so that's actually a small, very small piece of the charter school pie, particularly for African-American students. Uh, a bigger piece of the story that's probably not told enough is the situation where charter schools are closing down uh, because they're performing poorly or enrollment's low. Um, charter schools that are uh, at least as measured by test results not doing well at all. I think Detroit is a great example of where you might uh, see some of that story in particular. Charter schools actually targeting parents, particularly African-American parents, by doing things like saying, if you enroll in my school, I'll give you a $100 grocery uh, gift certificate in order to attract students because otherwise students are not uh, coming because it's, it's not generally... A, offering a better quality of education. And that goes directly to, you know, how the charter schools get their funding, right? They get funding per student. So you can have this, you know, submit this application if it's approved. You were funded based on the number of students. Uh, but of course, the direct result of that is those funds that would otherwise go to the public school system, the traditional public school system, it's not going there. Um, Malik, can you talk about how that depletion of funds from the traditional public schools having an, a, an impact on those students who are not going to charter schools? Um, so, I mean, there's a couple things. One, 
is in a number of places you are seeing public schools closing. In Granville County in North Carolina, the school district was forced to close and consolidate schools because a local charter opened and it pulled away a, a number of students such that they had to um, consolidate. Um, the money f follows the child. And I think there's an argument that the money should in fact follow the child. But when you don't have oversight and if you have a school that's already struggling, once you start to remove students, you lose some of the benefits of economy of scale. Um, so having a certain number of students, one additional student you might not need, a teacher you lose number of students then you do need more teachers especially in schools that are already struggling right and so this is really we have a system where parents in high performing schools are less likely to tend to pull their child out and send to a charter and so the schools that are being hurt by this are schools that are probably most in need would probably need additional resources or you see the skimming the top students are taken out who wouldn't need, you're left with higher concentrations of poverty. And we know that when you get these high concentration of poverty, that it increases costs and that's not taken into consideration. They're only looking at students and doing the per pupil funding per student as opposed to looking at additional costs, ESL, students, um, students who are on free and re reduced price lunch. Those things aren't taken into consideration when students leave. But doesn't the uh, decision to use a charter school increase the cost to the family in the sense that now they have to pay for transportation, uh, they have to pay for uh, lunches, uh, particularly for poor uh, students and other uh, requirements that the uh, school might impose on the children that the parents typically don't have to pay uh, do at, a, uh, at a public school. Depends on the charter. So there are charters that provide uh, lunch, if, you, if they hit the numbers for free and reduced price lunch, they can still receive funding there. Your charter may, in fact, be closer than your local public school. There are charters that provide transportation because they are trying, especially in North Carolina, again, you're pulling from a higher, because you can pull from all over the place. You have charters in the Triangle area that pull students from Wake County, Orange County, and Durham County and they provide transportation, they have pickup spots where you can come, they provide. So it's not necessary, it's not always true that they're not gonna be providing these services. So that depends on, on the right. school. And some of them, again, are doing it intentionally. So you can say you're not gonna provide these services as a way to sort of self, have a self-selecting process. Mm -hmm. There are charters, again, that are looking specifically at attracting students who are underperforming and think they can do a better job. So I don't want to demonize charters completely. I think the problem is when you don't have this accountability and you have all these different things, I mean, I think that's the interesting thing about the Senate bill, right, is that it is calling for an examination. It's not saying let's get rid of charters. It's saying let's take a moment, let's look at the impact of these things, let's figure out how to do and address charters in a better, more intentional way. You know, one thing I want to just kind of underscore, um, Malik, you were talking about the, the depletion of funds in the traditional schools. Um, you know, schools were, particularly in North Carolina and really kind of across the country, were um, 
their funding was being cut, particularly in 2008 when we had the Great Recession. And then when we think about 2011 in North Carolina, you've got the removal of the cap. So you kind of had this convergence of uh, public education funds being cut. In addition, funds were being diverted from the traditional public schools at the same time as the charter schools were exploding. So we're at a point now where we have twice as many charter schools that we than we had in 2011, roughly. Um, so when we think about the, the impact that this is having on um, the, the traditional public schools and that the vast majority of children that are being educated in this state are being educated within the traditional public school setting, um, that's, that's a lot of um, uh, diversion of funds uh, that we're seeing you know, occur within the traditional public school systems. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as this discussion of, you know, kind of accountability money, so a number of charter schools, uh, maybe not necessarily in North Carolina, but this is a, a concern, I think, nationally, is the misuse of funds. So when we think about the fraudulent use of funds or just the mismanagement of funds, um, what are your thoughts about uh, that aspect of, of charter schools and, and why there's a need for kind of a putting on the brakes and examining what's going on? Erica? I mean, absolutely. I think um, that... The accountability piece in terms of where is the money going um, is something that's definitely worth uh, studying. As Malik said, the, the North Carolina bill is asking, saying, let's take a look at this. Uh, let's take a look at um, accountability measures in terms of money, for example, what's happening with the money. And so uh, particularly because the money is being diverted from traditional public schools, I think it's critical uh, to have some or better oversight in terms of where the is the funding going. Um, even in North Carolina, you've heard um, there are stories about uh, for-profit charter schools, for example, being able to do things like um, uh, lease out a building and charge the school or, or the state for it and to uh, pick up extra money that way. And so all of these things cost. Uh, they cost in terms of tax dollars. They cost in terms of uh, opportunity costs. The money um, could be used for something else to, to better educate uh, students. So I think um, financial accountability, trans, uh, transparency um, should be number one on the list in terms of uh, if this bill goes through, um, really looking at um, how to make sure that uh, the funds are being used appropriately. Well, outside of the uh, legislative uh, study, should uh, African-American educators consider opening charter schools for African-American uh, children so that they can develop uh, different models uh, for uh, for educating our children since we are at uh, the tail end on the public school side. Uh, we're at the tail end on the private school side. We're at the tail end on the uh, charter school side. Why don't we just open up our own charter schools and educate uh, our own? Well, there are definitely models for that. I mean, I think one of the interesting things is the charter part of charter schools has been lost. It used to be part of putting your tr- your charter was what you were doing different, what was innovative, mm-hmm. what your educational uh, plan was, and what was its philosophical approach. And so you were more likely to see these Montessori schools or Afrocentric schools or Ferrieri schools that had a specific educational approach. I don't know that the process of North Carolina actually looks at that underlying part of the charter. These are just schools that are going to get state money that are 
being run, and they're not required to do anything innovative or anything different. If they're not, that sort of removes one of the reasons that we've traditionally had charters. And so I think there is a call to encourage educators who, have, who understand what's necessary to do this. But again, can we afford to lose these folks in the traditional public system? This is the uh, Legal Legal Review, and uh, we're talking with uh, Malik Edwards, uh, who is a law professor at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and Erica Wilson, who's a professor at UNC uh, Chapel Hill uh, School of Law, and we're talking about uh, charter schools, the uh, ups and downs, the pros and the, uh, and the cons. Uh, we're gonna take a break right now. I want you to uh, stay with us, and we'll be right back. Center for Child and Family Health was founded in 1996 as a consortium of North Carolina Central University, Duke University, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and the Durham community. Since that time, CCFH has become a national leader in research, training, and the treatment of childhood trauma. The mission of CCFH is to care for children and families affected by abuse, neglect, and other forms of trauma. Its professionals utilize a multidisciplinary, measurable approach to provide prevention services, treatment for children and families, professional training, and research related to childhood traumatic stress by uniquely integrating community-based practice and academic excellence. Its vision is that every child has the right to be loved, nurtured, and safe. As a center of excellence, CCFH strives to define the highest standards in the prevention and treatment of childhood trauma. In this way, stability and hope can be restored for children and their families. Information about the Center for Child and Family Health is at 919-419-3474 or the Center's website at www.ccfhnc.org. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Legal Review. We're talking with uh, Malik Edwards, who is a professor at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and uh, Erica Wilson, who is a professor at uh, UNC Chapel Hill School of Law. And we're talking about uh, charter schools. Uh, there are a bunch of those uh, around, and the uh, number uh, is uh, slated to uh, increase in the, uh, in, in the coming uh, years. How many students presently are involved in uh, charter schools in, uh, in North Carolina? I think it's about 109,000, 109,500. And this is out of a total population? It's of about 7.3% of the state's 1.5 million students. And it's growing? And it's growing. Yeah, okay. That's, uh, uh, and then as we add now, what, 35 additional schools uh, to, the, uh, to the mix, uh, we can anticipate adding another, what, 20,000, 30,000 uh, students to that, uh, to that number? 
I'm not sure exactly yeah. what those numbers would look like. It, it depends on the charter school's capacity. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Now, one of the, uh, I think, hindrances of, uh, of, of, the, of the charter school is that they have to provide their own space. Uh, their own building structure. Uh, has that been uh, something that has caused or uh, uh, the opening of additional charter schools? Or is location or facilities really a big problem in uh, whether you can uh, operate one? So I think there are a number of issues with that. The first is location uh, matters a lot. Location might determine what your student body looks like. And so um, real estate in some areas may be more expensive, more hard, harder to come by than in others. Uh, and so the choice of where you cite a charter school has tremendous consequences in terms of who actually shows up. Um, the second issue, as you pointed out, is just uh, the, the funding. Where's that going to come from? There is actually a big controversy in Durham, North Carolina, about the Excelsior um, Academy mm -hmm. Charter School, uh, who wanted to obtain a, uh, a loan to purchase the building uh, that they are currently located in, but they needed the city council's approval. Uh, and so it wasn't going to cost the city of Durham uh, anything, but the city, um, by a five to two vote, declined uh, to give them the authority to, to get this loan. Uh, and so they did so because they had bigger issues about the role of of charter schools and what it means for traditional public schools. But I only use that as a concrete example of some <coughs> of the um, complicated issues that arise. I mean, I think the Excelsior Academy Charter School in Durham is an example of one that's much wider than the general Durham uh, public school system, and I think there were issues around that. Uh, but the ability of uh, charters to uh, find a location, uh, finance a location, certainly can uh, be a contested issue. In places where you have a lot of school closings, uh, places like Chicago, for example, there's a lot of contestation about whether or not closed public schools, traditional public schools, should then become charter schools, uh, and whether there are intentional efforts to depress the performance of traditional public uh, schools in order to make a building or space available for charter schools. And in some jurisdictions, you've had charters and public schools operating in the same spaces. And, it's mm. a, and so the public schools generally did not like that. They felt like it was a parasite that they're there pulling students that otherwise would have gone to the schools. Erica, you mentioned the, a law that was recently passed that focused on municipalities outside of uh, or within the Charlotte area. Um, can you talk a little bit about that, that law and why it's so problematic? Yeah. So, I mean, the first thing to understand about the law is it's occurring against this broader backdrop of uh, the state legislature wanting to study school district secession. Uh, and so school district secession is generally defined as when individual cities or municipalities within a county school system secede from the county system and form their own municipal or city-based uh, school system. And so there have been talk about potentially uh, jurisdictions in Wake County like Cary, for example, or some of the suburbs outside of Charlotte uh, withdrawing from those county-based districts and forming their own 
city-based uh, school districts. So this new um, legislation that the state legislature passed allowing those four municipalities outside of Charlotte to create their own charter districts uh, is novel. It's not something that we've seen anywhere else in the country. Uh, and so the controversy arises because uh, they've given them the authority to create their own charter districts, uh, and they've also permitted them to restrict attendance in the charter schools to students who live within those municipalities. So the, the practical effect of that is to allow them to um, to secede without calling it a secession, right? Because uh, parents can then choose to ten attend the charter district or not. You can imagine that um, some of the recruitment strategies I mentioned earlier in terms of offering free and reduced lunch, transportation, all of those things might come into play and w will induce uh, parents to choose the charter districts. Uh, and so the last controversial piece of it is the funding part uh, that uh, for the first time, the state legislature would allow uh, the funding, um, the, the charter district to fund its own system and their money would be used to fund their schools only. Uh, and so that is a big loss uh, for the rest of the, the, the county. Have any of these uh, municipalities began to move on actually developing uh, the uh, charter school in this new context? So it's my understanding that there's one, and I don't want to misstate which one it is that is taking steps uh, to do it, but no one has actually done it yet. Mm -hmm. And all of the other issues that we've kind of talked about in terms of discipline, in terms of the rights of the students, because these are charter schools, even if you have someone who lives within that, that area and they're able to get in, um, and they may be a student um, who has greater needs, even if we're talking about students with disabilities, they don't have the same types of um, rights that they would have if they were attending a public school and this is ostensibly going to be like a neighborhood school but mm -hmm. but the students within the students that would be served don't have the same types of um, rights and protections that they would have if it was a traditional public school well technically the the due process rights that you get when you go to a traditional public school still attach uh, in charter school and I say technically because the due process rights you have are all a matter of implementation. Uh, the law says what it says, but how it's implemented is a totally different uh, animal. How Not only how it's implemented, but the oversight over the ways in which it's being implemented. If you're in a traditional public school uh, and there are issues with racially disparate discipline, for example, there are ways to file public records requests to, uh, to, to, to see what's going on that way, to, uh, to, to hold uh, the traditional public school accountable. Charter schools, again, raise a whole different set of issues in terms of both the implementation and accountability. You may not be able to get access to the same level of records, uh, et cetera, that you would in a traditional public school. And we know, and we've talked about, you know, that there are some there are some charter schools that are doing um, an exemplary job and doing, you know, being very innovative. Uh, Malik is one of the solutions, and I think you've touched upon this a little bit, uh, to have maybe charter schools, when we think about the governance of charter schools, instead of having it separate and apart from school districts, elected school boards, uh, maybe having them fall under school boards. Is that because I believe that's what they're doing in Virginia. Is that a, a viable solution to at least address the issue of governance? Um, well, I mean, I think there's a couple things. One, it depends on if you think bureaucracy is the problem or not. I actually think some of the oversight would be important. 
um, is how do you do that without addressing the innovation? I mean, the other thing we haven't talked about is charters is just a way to go after unions, um, which I think is something else that is happening as part of this process. Well, let's talk about that. Go ahead and, and share what your thoughts are on, on that point. Well, it's not clear that teachers within the charters have the right to organize. And so a way to sort of get out of teacher salaries and other negotiated benefits is to open charters. Um, I mean, if you watch something like Waiting for Superman, which is really a story of what is viewed as a successful charter, I think you folks I know who are teachers, specifically in the union setting, view it as basically an attack on teachers' unions. Other people watch Waiting for Superman and think it's the best thing, and why don't we just do this for everyone? Um, the question is whether charters would be appropriate. I think there are other reform models that do a lot of things that charters provide. So if we look at whole school reform models where teachers are given greater for voice and parents are given greater voice, there are models for doing whole school reform within traditional public settings that allow you to get to some of the innovations that you see within the charters. So it's not even clear that charters are necessary to do this sort of innovation. There was federal funding for whole school reform for a number of years, sort of in late uh, 90s, when the money disappeared, states didn't continue to fund um, the implementation of whole school reform. And those were around different models, which would look like charters and different services that were going to be provided. And hey, different reading programs, different philosophical approaches, some provided additional services, such as psychological and social services within the school building. You had to have a parent team, you had to have a certain number of parents, you had to create teacher buy-in. And these are the same things they're sort of talk about in the charter context, but you, could, you may be able to provide them in a public school context. And to that point, I think LeBron James's uh, school, uh, mm -hmm. his I Promise school, many people think it's a charter school. It's not, actually. It's a partnership with the traditional uh, public school district uh, to create that very kind of different kind of school innovation, community-based services, wraparound services within the school. So I totally agree. Charters are not the only way um, to, to get at school reform. It's just the, it's, uh, we've kind of been sucked in by the market-based reform as the, um, the gold standard when it doesn't have to be. Well, how, how does that, that, that work? How, how does the, the LeBron School uh, work in terms of the partnership with, uh, with a traditional uh, public school? And it, it has excelled academically uh, based on what the uh, evaluations are uh, up to this point. Yeah, so my understanding is that it is uh, with LeBron James's financial assistance, it is a partnership with the uh, school district. And so with his additional financial assistance, they're able to provide things like uh, social workers in the school, for example. They're able to, um, to work out uh, policy arrangements where the students may have uh, a longer day, uh, things like that, uh, that they're able to, uh, to, to use to try and address the child holistically. They actually uh, picked out uh, the enrollment in the school was limited to kids who were really struggling um, in the school system. So it's the opposite of charters and, and, and some charters. I won't demonize all charters. Some charters that attempt to, attempt to skim 
the LeBron school is actually reverse skimming, for lack mm. of a better word, in terms of taking the most needy students, offering these additional uh, wraparound services, innovation in how they uh, teach. Uh, and so, uh, so far, the results look pretty good. Mm. How, how, how far can that model go without LeBron James? There are other models that use it. Um, University of Pennsylvania started the Sadie T. Alexander School. Um, it's a neighborhood school that has a catchment area. Now, granted, they did it because to encourage faculty members to move into the district, they needed to have a school where they would send their <laughs> students. But the school is still predominantly black children. They provide additional supports it provides a way for them to do the education for the ed school to be involved. But they didn't do it as a lab school, which has traditionally been the way that universities have done it. I mean, Chicago's lab school is probably the most famous of that, but that's a private school where they did it. They intentionally said, we're going to do a public school. We're going to be accountable to the Board of Education, but we're going to provide additional services. So it's finding people who want to be involved in the process. It's providing these supports. Um, I think wraparound services, longer school days, year-round, these different things that are talked about as innovative, but I think we've been doing them long enough to know that there are positive results. It becomes how do we go about funding this? Where do the supports come from? And if money isn't being diverted to vouchers and charters, is the money there to provide these additional supports. And you mentioned lab schools. Can you explain the difference between lab schools and charter schools and these kind of other wraparound schools? Okay. Lab schools are traditionally run by universities. Lab is for laboratory school because, and some of these schools have been around for hundreds or a hundred years now. They're private schools. They do innovation and they're allowed for the schools to sort of provide classrooms for the folks that they are training to do education and to sort of show how the theory works and provides an option for folks to send their students there. Um, so a number of universities have lab schools. Charters, again, you apply, you run a school with state funding. Um, so you could have a lab school as a charter school. You could ostensibly run a lab school as a public school if you have it. Um, we haven't even gotten discussed magnets as a part of mm -hmm. choice, which is another way to do public education. And you can take, and this has come up recently just because the numbers at Stuyvesant and Bronx Science in New York City have come out. I think Stuyvesant has seven African Americans in their entering class. I think there are 13 at Bronx Science. So these schools will not look like schools generally, and they're public schools, but the same issues are raised. You're doing skimming, you're taking the best and brightest, you're creating opportunities for them, but the students who are left in the neighborhood schools don't have the same opportunities. And so what would we suggest to, um, you know, folks in the community that are, that are concerned about this issue? And well, why don't we start with, um, Malik, you've got uh, young daughters who aren't quite at, at the school age yet, but they will be before you know it. Snap your fingers, they'll, they'll <laughs> be there. Um, what, what, what do we tell you know, parents of, of children who are um, going to be going to elementary and secondary school? You know, how, 
what their what their options are. How do you be a good citizen, a good community citizen, and also make a decision about where to send your child? And, and looking at underperforming schools that's in their uh, yeah. local communities. So I have an eight-year-old son, right? And so um, I come at this from uh, both in terms of my research, but just as a parent. Uh, and it's hard, let me tell you, the, the choice model in Durham in particular, we live in Durham, uh, now, I, I'm a law professor, and for me to wade through all of the different school options uh, to understand uh, when different fares are, the um, application process, it was cumbersome. And let me tell you, I actually ended up having to get on the phone to the Durham Public Schools when it came time to apply for various magnet schools because my um, son's student ID number wasn't working, it wasn't taking in the computer. Uh, and so I had to sit on the phone for 45 minutes. And so um, I would say, you asked what I would tell parents, but I would also have a message for um school officials, the policymakers, that the choice system that's in place in many places uh, is very difficult to navigate. Uh, it actually does not, uh, it's like water, water all around and nothing to drink uh, because it, it only gives you the illusion of choice. Uh, my son wound up on the wait list uh, for every magnet school uh, that we apply to and not even close, like number 120 or something like that. Uh, and so it's challenging um, when you the the reform model that we have is one that emphasizes choice and we're going to make five or six uh, schools really good and then we're going to kind of give up on the rest uh, that uh, we need to do something different. We um, shouldn't have a scenario where we have three or four choice, even magnet schools. We haven't talked about magnet schools, but magnet schools uh, suffer from many of the same issues as charter schools in terms of skimming, limited uh, opportunities for enrollment. Uh, and so in any event, uh, I would just suggest to, to school officials, policymakers, we need to do something different. For parents, I would say uh, it, you want to be a good citizen and you should be a good citizen, really make uh, choices that are more public oriented. But I would also say that you on some level have to do what's best for your own child uh, at the same time. Those two things may conflict, and I suggest you live your values. <laughs> it's a dilemma. Yeah, so Malik, 30 seconds, because I, I just, I know you got little ones too. <laughs> um, get as much information as you can, figure out how to work the system, whether you got to backdoor it. I mean, knowledge is power, and power is power, but I, I agree that you make the decision that's best for your children. This came up with the Obamas when they decided to send their girls to Sidwell Friends, right? People said, well, how can you not send them to the public system? Ultimately, you do what you feel is best for your children, and you can, that doesn't mean you're not going to continue to make to work to make the system better. Okay. All right. Well, we will end it there. We're out of time. We'd like to thank Erica Wilson, law professor at UNC <laughs> Chapel Hill School of Law, and Malik Edwards law professor at our very own NCCU School of Law. And we'd like to thank you, of course, our listening audience for spending your Sunday evening with us. We hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have any questions or comments, please send us an email. You can reach us at LegalEagleReview at nccu.edu. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Until next week, stay informed and engaged. Mm -hmm.